Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from N.D. Wilson entitled, John Calvin, You Sexy Beast, from the series, The Institute of Awesome. Check out the full series now on Canon Plus. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for all the work you've done through history and through your servants scattered throughout history. I pray that you'd bless our time together now. Help us to learn from those who've gone before us. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so you've already seen in the little brochure thing, it's probably why you came to this conference, (laughs) that there was a talk called John Calvin, You Sexy Beast. Now, the file, my, my outline file, my notes, the file name is actually just John Calvin, You Sexy. Um, both work. And uh, I should also tell you that when I was asked by my brother-in-law to speak here about John Calvin, my sister was present. I said, oh, yes, it will be called. And then she had many objections. <laughs> so... Despite those objections, there was a deal made that I would speak if my talk was called this. Uh, As for explaining why, well, if it doesn't make any sense after I'm done, then feel free to ask in the the Q&A. So I'm going to talk about John Calvin, the hipster. John Calvin, the cool guy. John Calvin, the esthete. And it's kind, of, it's kind of strange to me that John Calvin has the reputation that he does. When you read general articles in general academic theological journals about John Calvin, there's all sorts of weird Freudian analysis about John Calvin's personal fears, John Calvin's terrors, and why he conjured up this theology. And they, they really analyze it as if it's totally distinct from the Apostle Paul or, or anything he may have read in Scripture. It's just John Calvin and his personal problems and uh, what got us here. Then they'll go so far as to actually say that this is these fears, this horror, this terror, that you are alone in the void, that you are the one cast out, that you were, you were not chosen before the foundation of the world, and there's nothing you can do about it, typified Calvin and all Calvinists today. Um, and they really will they'll just throw huge things out. So if you if you dance through Ivy League theological journals. That's the kind of stuff that they would say when they're talking about Calvin. Nobody's going to say that John Calvin was relaxed. Nobody's going to say that John Calvin didn't stress out, that John Calvin was actually quite okay with any number of things that, well, that we even blame American Calvinists for hating. So you think of those Southern Calvinists and their views of novels or theater. You just expect that to sort of be, you know, similar to what Calvin would be like upstream from them, but actually they're completely and totally dissimilar from, from Calvin. Uh, and the same thing is true of the stereotypes of the Puritans. So not the, not the good Puritans. Uh, the Elizabethan Puritans are actually quite Calvinistic uh, in, in how they went about things. Downstream, New England Puritans and the halfway covenant and everything that started to go wrong uh, with New England Puritanism is not at all typical of what Calvin would do. So first, the reputation. Of course, we are dour. If you say, man, Calvin had a really a, a really reasonable, balanced view of the arts, nobody's going to really buy you. I mean, they've seen the pictures with the beard. Um, <laughs> they're not going to actually believe that, that that beard was, in fact, ironic. Um, it wasn't. 
I think it was just for warmth. <laughs> but uh, now a beard like that in the hipster world could be quite cool on the right guitarist. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's actually not okay from a theologian, from a thinker, especially one that says that God is in charge of everything. Everything completely and totally. So when we jump out of the reputation, and we've all, the stereotype we don't have to spend too much time on because we've all heard it from somebody or seen it somewhere, uh, some criticism of Calvin and Calvinists, soulless, dour, you know, that, that kind of thing. Now, we have all argued, and you've heard argued, that that's not true of the theology, and it's not. But the soullessness, the dourness that they, that they would hit him with uh, doesn't make sense if you actually talk about him standing up for the rights of a, a dramatic production in Geneva. So 1546, you've got a play in town, and it's a passion play, but then they, and for some reason that was okay with everybody. The passion play was okay. So these are people who wouldn't let you have a picture of Christ in the sanctuary or probably anywhere, um, and I'm right with them. But then you move into drama, and they're okay with the passion play, and then it moves into a play of the Acts of the Apostles. Calvin said, go for it. Do it. And there were riots in Geneva because they had a dramatic production. So a play is being put on some dork by the name of Michael Kopp. I think that was his name. I don't know if you say Kopp or Cope. But he led these riots against the play of the Acts of the Apostles in Geneva. Uh, this is one more blow against historians, too. I think that Calvin was in charge of every single thought of every single person in that town. So the people who wanted to put it on asked Calvin, what do you think? He said, go for it. They went for it, and there were riots. Calvin had to, well, he called uh, the offender an idiot in a number of ways, quelled the riots and said, keep going, and it ran for another week. This is not the kind of thing that you would really expect of, of John Calvin. The truth of who he was and how he thought is completely different from what a lot of people believe. He staunchly defended art. He staunchly defended artists, even when those artists were unbelievers and writing from their unbelief. This is because of his concept of common grace. It made perfect sense to him that unbelievers would, would make and write beautiful things. It didn't surprise him at all. And everything he says about finding uh, wisdom and truth in the writings of the unbelievers applies to the arts as well. He pushed to allow a play, and admittedly it was a Sunday school play. Um, it wasn't like it was something from the Decameron or anything like that. Uh, he pushed to allow a play in Geneva, even when people were rioting in response. So this is a guy who believed that this was okay enough that he would stand up to a rioting mob about it. It's not just, yeah, well, it's okay. It might be fine. People are in the streets throwing things. And he's pushing against that to defend this dramatic production. Now, he did not actually construct a particular aesthetic theory. He did never sit down and say, okay, I'm now, I'm now going to conceive of how the arts work and what makes them work and what makes good art good and bad art bad. He didn't do that. He went back further and he was building really a theory of the world, a theology of life in general, of God and of man. And derivative from that, well, there's a lot of aesthetic theories to be, to be had. But at the time, he never got that far. He didn't need to get that far. He left the door wide open for the arts and really focused his attention where he had to focus his attention at the time. Now, I will actually maintain that his theology, too, is the only theology that can make sense of any aesthetic theory uh, that, that really uh, has, has any value whatsoever. 
So Reformation, rowdiness, and rationalists. One of the things that you see in your average analysis of Calvin from unbelieving theologians is that he was a rationalist. You know, that he was highly intellectual. He was about the grind. He was about making it work. And yet I think it's never so obvious that he's not a rationalist as when he tries to actually defend the authority of Scripture. And what he does there, uh, I'm going to touch on this briefly before racing off into uh, a bigger artistic comparison. But what he does there is instead of saying it's the authority of the church, the authority of the church is why we believe Scripture, which is what the Catholics would say. And instead of saying it's reasonable, uh, he actually made an, a, what is basically a philosophically aesthetic argument um, that God gives you the ability to receive it, um, and there's a power and a majesty in the word that resonates with you. Um, so it's not that you individually establish it. Uh, it's that the communication with God has occurred, and because he's a Calvinist, he's saying that God gave you the ability to hear. So this is an, an, an ability to hear. Ears are, ears are opened. Eyes, you know, eyes are opened. Uh, and then the word speaks. And this kind of freaks a lot of people out uh, when they try to explore and they, they try to interpret and spin and push different directions. But he come, he basically treats the authority of scriptures the way he treats the power of music. So he says, you know, music has this, this uh, let's see, he says exact, the exact words are, has a secret and incredible power to move our hearts. It's like music has this secret and incredible power. Uh, Calvin, I think, would go further than just the law of God uh, is written on our hearts. But, you know, actually you can, you know, music resonates with what God has made you. So God has made you a certain way. This resonates. God has made you a certain way. The word has power. The word resonates and it really resonates in an aesthetic way. Your reaction is visceral. So the, the reaction to the scripture is visceral. Uh, it's not just rational. So you're not saying, well, this makes sense. Process, process, check, check, check. Uh, it impacts you. It affects you the way that hearing a symphony would affect you, the way that looking at a Rembrandt would affect you, and that's how you know it's authoritative. That's how you know this is from God. Now, you're not trusting yourself. You're trusting God because he gave you the ability to even see, to even receive. And there's a lot that can, there's a whole bunch that can be done there. I don't think I fully understand it yet. I've read enough interpretations of it that I think are completely wrong as people try to really depend heavily on Platonism to make that make sense. Uh, but really, the people who are the most frightened by that are, shockingly, the Reformed. Now, why is this? Well, it's because we are a bunch of rationalists. Really, We really have headed down the line and compromised with Enlightenment thought. And that, that kind of thing scares us, you know, and, and rightfully so. Uh, because once you have two people saying, well, this resonates with me this way, and this resonates with me this way, uh, there's all sorts of problems. The church has a role in establishing the canon and, and so on, but does the church give the authority to Scripture? The church can testify to the authority of Scripture, but does not grant that authority. The authority is in Scripture itself, and the authority in Scripture itself speaks to you by itself. God actually establishes the authority of Scripture. So there's dangers there, and a lot of people could run around and get worried really quickly uh, about how Calvin proceeded there. That sounds awfully charismatic. That sounds awfully loosey-goosey. This is something that's dangerous. This is not the Calvin we know and love. We actually have uh, embraced that dour, sour image in a, in a classic Christian way. Once again, we have decided that if we're going to be slandered and stereotyped, that we should embrace the slander and the stereotype. Uh, the old get hung for a thief principle. 
Um, you know, if you're going to be hung, you may as well steal something. Uh, so you, you want to actually do it. I actually think this plays in, in the federal vision controversy. We've been accused of a lot of things and people have been, have gotten tired of being accused. And it's sort of like, okay, fine. I'll just do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, you keep telling me I should act more like a Catholic. So I guess I will then. Um, I think we've done that. And this is just human, human reaction. Uh, the stereotype of Calvinism, I think, is stuck to us. Because we, we have a loyalty generally to this tradition. And we think, well, that must be it. So let's all stick our thumbs in our armpits and act like Calvin did. Except for Calvin didn't actually act like that. Now, if people really want to attack Calvin's view of art, his relationship to art, there's two places where they can criticize him. Uh, the two largest art scenes of Calvin's day were A, idolatry, and B, idolatry. So you have the whole relic industry, which is really, I mean, honestly, the only thing comparable to it is today's art world. It's like it's, and, and that's explicit. From the 1960s on, art critics and art theorists have, have contrasted these two things. Like, wow, look, we're doing the same thing. And it's gotten more and more and more specific and conscious. So in Calvin's world, you have, I think, the, the highest selling uh, artistic piece of uh, that general of those centuries, I think, it was the Crown of Thorns uh, from Constantinople which sold for the equivalent today of something like approaching $40 million. You know, so when the Crusaders said, why would we go all the, all the way to Jerusalem to make up relics? You know, it's like we have to go pillage graveyards and pop knuckles out and sell them off as John the Baptist's 594th finger. Um, <laughs> or we could just stop here. You know, this is the Constantinople Byzantium was the great museum. It's like all these different pieces and collections had their own museums. It's like people would travel to go walk through the museum and see the things on display. Uh, and so they stopped and they stole it all and they sold it. And that's, that's what happens. The Crown of Thorns went big. The Shroud of Turin went big. Uh, and these were all artistic pieces. Now, they had weird mystical things going on, too. Some of them were just straight-up forgeries. Everybody knew they were forgeries. Others were actually trying to create something that could become holy, Especially the more you dabble with the Greeks and the, the less you're working with the Catholics, uh, the more they actually would just do bizarre things like think that they had actually just made it and it was real now. Um, you know, and then contact holiness, touching this thing to that thing. Um, when they ran out of nails that had pierced Christ, uh, they used the doctrine of the Eucharist and just pierced a wafer with a nail and then gave it a shrine. It was like that. I mean, that's that's the level it was it was at, um, and everybody knew that's what had happened, but it was still the thing, uh, and then it was supposed to be powerful. It was, it was supposed to move you, um, and then luckily it, it also you have five or seven people lined up testifying to the miracles it performed, and now it's legit. Now you can sell it for a lot of money, and so on. So Calvin obviously mocked this, and he mocked it heavily. Uh, the thing that's weird is. In the history of art, we didn't really see that again until modern art, until contemporary art. Uh, this year, a bronze cast of a man walking, I think it's called Walking Man 1, is officially now the highest priced uh, art item ever. It sold for like $104 million earlier this year. Um, and it was a cast. It cost about twenty-five grand to make, and they could just make another one. 
it's like it's you know it was cast it wasn't like it was michelangelo uh who'd spent 20 years actually touching it and shaping it but even if it had been the value of that michelangelo is that michelangelo spent 20 years touching it and shaping it it's a relic of michelangelo uh, it now has value uh as as a relic in the 1960s an extremely intelligent man named Pierre, uh, Piero, Piero, that's just promising already. Piero Manzoni, uh, said, you know, honestly, all art is reliquary. You know, that's it. Uh, and so he's the one who, uh, as he said, consecrated, I think, 75 hard boiled eggs with his thumbprint and then communed with the artistic community when he let them eat them. Uh, and then he moved on and then created relic, relics of himself. Um, and he, he said, basically, I should, this, this is a quote, so forgive me. I should like all artists to sell their fingerprints or else stage competitions to see who can draw the longest line or sell their shit in tins. The fingerprint is the only sign of the personality that can be accepted if collectors want something intimate, really personal to the artist. And then there's the artist's own shit. That is really his. Um, so he went on and he pooped in cans and sealed them up, and they are still, uh, one was just purchased by the Tate most recently for a very large sum of money, um, and the Tate in the description of the auction item said that it was amazing that he had created something so impenetrable to science, <laughs> and uh, which shockingly is what they say about the Shroud of Turin um, as well, although the Shroud of Turin is slightly more impressive. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, it's truly bizarre when you start to look at the comparisons. Now there's the Guggenheim actually built, actually built, uh, a new, the, the newest modern art museum in southern Spain along the pilgrimage route. And they, uh, you know, consciously built it along the old pilgrimage route. Uh, and even now it's still something that's, that you have, you're not really an artist. You're not really somebody who cares about the art world unless you've been. There, unless you've been to Rome, have you been to Florence? Have you been to this new museum and that place? And have you have you walked by with all the all the pilgrims? So moderns, modern postmoderns, atheists, rationalists can all laugh at the medievals for for running by and touching John the Baptist's knuckle, and yet here they are selling cans of excrement to each other. Yeah, it, it's. Here we go again. Now, if you think the medievals would not have stooped to selling a can of excrement, you weren't paying attention uh, because they, they were selling Christ's foreskin. You know, sort of like that's there are various copies of that uh, being sold around uh, and many and many others. Um, <clears throat> I mean, some of them are just impossible. Uh, so Calvin actually blasted at this stuff. He called it trash, precious rubbish, uh, evident lies. You know, in Geneva, there was. On the high altar, the brain of Peter <clears throat> in Geneva. So this is what Calvin's looking at directly. You know, so the high altar, look, it's the brain of Peter. And this was just sort of okay that somebody had torn it out of him. Um, <clears throat> but upon inspection, it turned out to be a piece of pumice. <laughs> Calvin fired away. I mean, he just blasted. So he famously said that there are enough fragments of the true cross to make a whole ship's cargo. Some people say to make Noah's Ark. Um, whole ship's cargo and so on. I don't know how many John the Baptists there were. You know, many, many heads of John the Baptist. Um, and in one place, there was even a very tiny shield of the Archangel Michael. I'm not sure what they were <laughs> trying to say there. Um, many, many ludicrous things. That was the bustling art scene. 
That was it. Now, the thing that's funny to me is now when people actually sound like Calvin and they say something like, well, Christians need to be involved in the arts. They're talking about our version of that. You know, they're, they're generally talking about going into the Guggenheim and going, hmm, this is amazing. Or going to the body show, you know, where somebody's literally taking cadavers and shaped them and standing. Are, does that smell like relics to you? I mean, this, these are actually human bits, pieces of dead people standing there showing you their lungs or just the nervous system standing there. It's like this is the kind of thing that would have thrilled those relic hunters. Absolutely thrilled them. And here we are doing the exact same thing. And then our hip Calvinist, or even non-Calvinist, just hip Christian uh, thinkers who want to say, we need to be involved in the arts, we need to be involved in the arts, they're talking about that. It's like somebody telling Calvin, we need to really get in on this relic scene. This is hot. This is where the people are. This is how we reach the people, right? Look where the, look at those lines. If only we could get to the front of that line, we could talk to all of them. Well, think of the influence. Uh, Calvin just blasted away. I'm absolutely blasted away at that. But then on the flip side, the other art scene. And it really was just the other art scene. Sacred art. Images in sanctuaries. So how could an artist get paid? You know, could an artist paint a picture of dogs playing poker? at this point in time and make any money, uh, you know, could that, could that happen? And the answer is no, they, uh, they couldn't, they had to actually paint pictures of, you know, saints on, you know, saints on ceilings. And Calvin just pitched a fit about this, not only just because it's idolatry, but also because they're all naked. What is with this? I mean, he just, he was pointing out the obvious. And for a long time as a kid, I remember thinking like, well, did they all really just kind of, were they that casual? I mean, like just, <laughs> It's like, but no, once again, it's the, it's the artists, you know, trying to sell, trying to draw. Why do you think people would funnel past and look at these things? You know, in a world where they didn't have porn, they didn't have photography, they didn't have, you know, all the other vices they could have. It's like, well, we'll just throw it on the ceiling of the church and call it holy, and then we will bring them in. <laughs> and so why are there so many naked people in church decorations? Like, well, seeker sensitivity, my friends. <laughs> That's it. It wasn't like, you know, there's you know, a playboy in every corner. It's like they had to go to church for that. Um, so Calvin pitched a fit about that, how they all looked like they're at some sort of, you know, orgy. They're, also, they're in the middle of these Bacchic revelries in church. What, what is going on? Um, he, that really bothered him. And of course, the additional idolatry bothered him. Not only were they dressed like this or not dressed like this, they were also getting prayed to. They were also magical. Uh, and, and that irritated him. Rightfully. So he's blasting away at that, which is half of the industry, and he's blasting away at the relics, which are the other half of the industry. And who else is there? You know, well, there are some, there are some portraiture going on, but there's, there's not a lot else to talk about in terms of true artistic media. Now, architecture, that kind of thing, that's there, but they would still see that far more as a craft infused with artistry, and they hadn't divorced just the fine arts from uh, the rest of life the way we have. So this is why Calvin has a bad reputation. It's not that he was against art. It was that he, against, he was against all of the art of his day. If you, if you wrote a few scathing treatises on the last round of grants, federal grants that were given to installation artists, uh, and then a few hundred years from now, people say, man, they really hated art. Like, no, you hated crucifixes and urine. That's, that's what you hate, and you hated tax dollars going to that. There's a lot of things you can hate about the art world that are the exact same things that Calvin hated about his art world. Shockingly, Calvin was very common sense about the relics. 
um, and a, more than actually more than a couple art theorists and art critics who've connected these two movements, the relic movement uh, and contemporary art movement, have pointed out Calvin's criticism of the relic movement is very similar to just the common sense shrug and laugh of a lot of conservative Christians today. It's like, so our art criticism, uh, for those who've just snorted um, at modern art, really is echoing Calvin. And yet at the same time, he manages somehow, Calvin manages not to write off art in general, which a lot of other people had done. Imagine being, this, this is how reasonable Calvin was. And this is kind of the shocking thing to me. He was remarkably reasonable for his time. Imagine living in a world when the only films were porn. And that's it. And defending film. It's like being in that position and saying, well, film is not sinful. These could still be good. And basically every example of it has a problem. Every single example of that artistic media at that time is flawed, is corrupted, is problematic. And he still managed to attack the content, but not necessarily the delivery system. He still, you know, he still managed to say, basically, sculpture and painting are gifts from God. And that's it. End of story. Sculpture and painting are gifts from God. He went on to say that it's, it, we have no right to despise gifts. It's like we, we can't shrug off gifts. And at that time, what sculpture was there for him to admire? What painting was there for him to admire, which he would not also have lots and lots of problems with on other, on other grounds? He talked about one of the things I really like about this is he, he talks about historical representations, which can be instructive. So those are okay. So historical representations, and then there's just pictorial representations, which are simply for amusement. And he was great with that. Calvin, the reformer, was great with artistic genres that were simply for amusement. And that's it. Just frivolous. Honestly, the dogs playing poker thing. That's a picture that he would have been fine hanging on his wall. It's for amusement. And that's it. He would have a problem with the Sistine Chapel ceiling, but not with dogs playing poker. Uh, which, again, remarkably reasonable of him. His defense of this basically is summed up. I'll hop through. This isn't the full quote. Should the Lord have attracted our eyes to the beauty of the flowers and our sense, our sense of smell to pleasant odors? Has he not made the colors so that the one is more wonderful than the others? Has he not made things worthy of our attention that go far beyond our actual needs? We don't need them. It's frivolous. The flowers are frivolous. The smell of those flowers, frivolous. Sunsets, unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. And he argues from that that we can do all sorts of things that are completely and totally unnecessary, but are fun. You know, that's, and that's it. And he was great with an entire art scene generated on that. Instructive art and then just fun art. But don't you dare make a statue where you want people to crawl up to it and rub its big toe and offer up a prayer. Don't you dare make yourself a brain of St. Peter as an installation artifact. It's like, that's, that's his problem. So he really would, I think, have less problem with film, what we have in terms of like pop film. Um, and when I say pop film, I, you all know I don't have to make all the qualifications about the film industry. than he would with the really important works of art in the modern art museums of our time. He'd just snort and laugh at that and identify the worldview, the idolatry that's going on. Uh, amusements. The world is full of them. This is Calvin. Talking, defending frivolous art as opposed to important sacred art. 
And that's, that's where Calvin is. So we've already talked about some people who might, you know, some guy living in Manhattan as a Christian saying, we need to be part of this. Look at these lines. Look at these people. Think of the influence. If we got, if we got our own installation artists, if we had our own modern art museum, if we had really abstract paintings that looked like Pollock's, but we called them grace and, and things like that. That's something that's just laughable. I mean, Calvin is the most suspicious of art when it, it's trying to, you know, play that role. That's laughable. And then at the same time, you know, you, you flip over to the other side, uh, and you've got a whole bunch of people trying to create important works or spiritual works, trying to cram morals in. And, you know, he's, he's fine with that. I mean, he's okay with the play of the Acts of the Apostles. You know, he's, he's okay with that. He's great with that. Uh, but his strongest arguments come when he's defending the wasteful, the frivolous, the stuff that just produces joy and amusement, and because that's what the world does. That's the picture. So we've got people who want to run after the important, the important scene. And then we've got people who want to get, you know, more of this artistic genre stuff into the church. Uh, and that's where he's going to kick. You know, that's where he's going to have problems. And that's honestly, I think he does that wisely. It's a solid, solid move. So Calvin avoids rationalism. Uh, and I think there's no testament to that more than how he talks about the authority of Scripture. And he goes aesthetic on the authority of Scripture. He talks about the secret power of music to move. And not wrongly, he warns against, uh, it's not that he's just okay with music. He warns against music uh, that degrades and corrupts good manners and flatters the flesh. And we've never seen any music like that. I don't know what kind of music would flatter the flesh. I don't, I don't, I just don't know. Sort of the bounce with me, bounce with me. Like that kind of thing um, doesn't flatter the flesh at all, <laughs> but it has a secret and incredible power. And incidentally, this remains true today. Music has a secret and incredible power. Certain chord progressions have a secret power just because we know what they actually do. We can just say this is what they do to people. Doesn't mean we understand why they do that to people. So he talks about the power there, the potential there. And he loved music like Luther loved music. And it's an art that he actually explicitly, obviously, wants involved in worship. This is, this is something we're shown how to offer up. This is the kind of thing we bring into our services, and we create it, and we offer it up as, as an offering. So music's great. Sculpture and painting, those are gifts of God. Drama, go for it. I'll stand down the riot for you. I mean, this is, this is John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin, the uptight, anal retentive theologian. John Calvin defending art forms when their only manifestation had been corrupt. Now, moving on. Let's talk about Reformed theology in general and what it does for art. On your outline, it's sine qua nopi nopi. Uh, quoting from my four-year-old. Not the sine qua part. Nopi nopi is his, his favorite negative at this moment. What is good Christian art? What does it accomplish? Think for a moment first what good art could accomplish and what it deteriorates into if the world Calvin describes is inaccurate. In a world in which there is a sovereign God, in a world in which God makes everything, Calvin can defend frivolous things. Because he's a Calvinist, he can defend sunsets. Because he's a Calvinist, he can defend thistle blooms, flowers. He can defend those things because he is a Calvinist. Because of the exhaustive sovereignty of God, those things are defensible. Without that, 
Any of them could be false. Any of them could be deception. Any of those things could be of the devil. Any of those things could be here to tempt us, to lead us away. Without Calvinism, you cannot trust reality around you. So if we think of art as the imitation of the, of the world, trying to, trying to reproduce and capture the artistry that God himself rep, you know, uses. So, and I've talked about this before at previous, uh, well, previous situations and at this conference, the equivalent of this conference in the past. And I don't need to walk through it all again, but the nutshell is basically, if everything's from God, if, if God is trying to create art, and he is, if God is this, an artist speaking in the moment, creating the world in the moment, and he is, what is he painting a picture of? What is he creating? It's not just random. It's like God has an art project going. God is creating a picture of the best of all possible subjects. His glory. The infinite triune creator is trying to represent in miniature on a tiny little postcard that is the boundless universe, the infinite God. So God is infinite. This reality is not. That means he is a miniaturist representing his glory in the arc of history, in the galaxies and so on. It's all intentional. It's revealing his personality. The Father is glorifying the Son, the Son, the Father, both the Spirit, the Spirit, them, and so on. It's like this is, this is all for a purpose. All of this has context, which means that a person living in that world consciously can see anything and know that it belongs in art. Anything. So long as you find the same context that God uses for it. So, does excrement belong in a can, sealed and up on auction as a relic of the artist? No. Does it belong, does excrement belong in stories? Does it belong in art? The answer is yes, it does. In what context? Well, how do you see it around? You know, so it's, it's remarkable. So you ignore it, but how does God use it? Rich soil. It's like, how, how does he use it? It's a death and resurrection theme. Shockingly, again, ha-ha, one more time. And again, here comes the motif, and we have the thistles, and they're chewed up, and they are falling out the back of the cow. You know, it's like, that's, and they've died again. And then everything springs up because it's rich and nutritious. This death brings forth a, a resurrection, not just for the flies, but also for plants, which can be eaten and chewed up and fall out of the cow again. <laughs> Over and over and over again. Find the context. If you see it here, it belongs in art because it already is in art. It's already in an artistic piece. And it's in an artistic piece by an artist whom you can trust. And that's the kicker. Calvinism gives you that whom you can trust because there's not meddling. You know, the devil is not, an, you know, sort of the, the Star Wars thing. We don't have Darth Vader and Luke worrying over what to paint. Uh, that's that's not what happens. We don't have the devil, mis- you know, just messing up the canvas from outside the canvas. The devil is on the canvas. The fall is on the canvas. It belongs in context. You want to work evil into your story, darkness into your art. Find the same context. Use it the same way God has used it. They abandoned the exhaustive sovereignty of God, and then trust nothing. You can't. You can't say, well, I've gone out into the world and I found this thing. I could, this is beautiful. Well, maybe it's not. Does God like it? I'm not sure. Is it deceptive? Well, it could be. Uh, and, and the post Hellenistic Catholic thought really was tainted by this. So think about how much they hated the body, how much they, they constantly struggled with that. Think about Augustine and the struggle he had, you know, the, the struggles he had with the, the flesh. 
Um, and not just because he was always tempted, but because the flesh was just this major, major problem. Uh, and I think he dealt with it nobly, given his context and his background. But I think of what that struggle is in that context. And then think of how liberating Calvin is. It's like all these things exist. They're all on the canvas. You can copy and imitate. An aesthetic theory can actually come into, into existence. Without this, you are left with that which you can trust. So if you don't know which things in the world come from God or the devil, if you don't know which things in the world are here to tempt you or, you know, are here to trick you or what, you just, you, you can't trust the exhaustive sovereignty of God. If you can't do that, what can you trust? Relics. That's what you're left with. That guy did good stuff, right? We all agree that Stephen was good. So let's get a piece of him. And you forget trying to capture the the representation of God, and you start trying to capture these little nuggets that you're sure of. It's like that's and that's it. These little things that we're confident in. He did good things, and even more so, this is the kneecap of Stephen. And even if it's not. Four miracles were done yesterday. We can trust it. And so everybody lines up. They all come and they pays their money. Uh, then there's a priest standing there with a rake to rake it in uh, as they th- all throw it on the floor. That's what we're left with. If you don't have a God you can trust in reality, the artists today are left just trying to reproduce themselves. They're just trying to honor themselves, give you relics of themselves and their genius. And that's it. Or relics of humanity in a weird, dark, morbid, nihilistic humanism that is the body show. It's like, so here's this relic of us. Here's this relic of this artist. Here's this relic of that guy, Pablo. Yeah, he had the great life story, but here's a piece of it. Here's a little tidbit. Here's a piece of his journal that we'll put on auction and sell for $250,000 for that paragraph because he touched it. You know, collections are driven by hagiography and, and artistic collections are no different. If you go with the exhaustive sovereignty of God, if you go with the theology that Calvin laid out, suddenly everything is open to you. Frivolous, dramatic productions are okay because you watch those happen every day on the street. It's like, it's, it's great. Let's do it. But what, where does it arrive? What's the point? Copy the point from the thing you saw on the street. It's like, get the context from, from God, from his natural revelation, then from his divine revelation, commenting on his natural revelation. You've got two witnesses there to try to triangulate in on what you should capture. Calvin gives us the only theology that can give us a sensical aesthetic theory. He didn't build the aesthetic theory for us, but he laid all the groundwork that gets us there, that allows us as Calvinists to enjoy stand-up comedy, dogs playing poker, and even to walk through the Sistine Chapel ceiling and say, yeah, it's kind of impressive. It's all in the will of God. It's like, obviously, God intended this to happen. I can marvel at it. I wouldn't paint it myself. Nor would I capture an artist and chain him up and stick him in the room and not let him leave until he'd painted it on, pain, <laughs> on threat of excommunication. Um, and worse, which is how that thing came to be. It's like, yeah, it's an idolatry. Yeah, the, you know, it's all in the will of God. All of it's here. All, all of it we can copy. What's it for? How does God use it? And so on. Calvin gives us that. Calvin, honestly, Calvin, the relaxed aesthete. Calvin, the guy who didn't stress out, even when there was a riot going on about the play. Calvin, who knew 
more than anybody at his time about the depths of the idolatry going on in the art world, sacred and relic art worlds, and was still okay with art, still managed to be relaxed about art, still managed to see the potential in it because he saw reality as from God. And I honestly think he's okay with the play because he's okay with the morning glories. It's like he's okay with this because he sees, well, obviously God is, uh, and so on. And moving on, the Sola story. Because we can't talk about this, Calvin the aesthete, Calvin the extra special cool kid, without really comparing the story he told, the story scriptures tell, to the stories that were being told at the time. I mean, you have a really sort of like Scientologist version of the gospel. You know, the the, the Hubbard sci-fi writer version where we've what we've done is we've created this purgatory. Uh, we've got a purgatory. We also have a limbo. You know, we've got all these different stages and, and rates. And, and um, shockingly, this is a religion of power. The story told by the Catholics at that time <clears throat> was a story of power. And that's it. Simple as that. <clears throat> Give us your money. We have kidnapped your loved ones. Give us your money. And that's the narrative. And then the good guys came and they locked all your people up in a really bad place. And they said, for this much money, you can have them back. Like, okay, this is, that's compelling. Um, <laughs> I can sympathize with the heroes. <laughs> you can't. The good guys are the bad guys immediately. And you start looking at the gospel. It's like, well, you know, God infuses you with grace, but then it's all gone by the time you walked out the door. It's gone again. Sorry, come back for more. It's like it's, and the refills aren't free. You know, it's like it's, come back, come back, come back. Over and over and over again. Uh, the nature of the grace first is impossible. And people like Luther, as a Catholic, understood that. That this was a trap. This narrative was a hamster wheel. And it was designed as a hamster wheel. There could never actually be a relief. There could never actually be a release. There was no third act ever. The second act just looped on itself over and over and over again. And you sin, you're going to hell again. You need us to save you again. And you're safe and you sin, you're going to hell again. It's like just over and over and over again. And also, this will be more money and you can do this. this here's your indulgence and so on. And then Calvin shows up, the reformers show up, Luther and all, all those greats, and just say, gift, sacrifice, done. It's over. And they keep the third act. So the second act is redemption. The second act, uh, act is justification. You, the, the turning point, the climax, and then now you're on the downward slope into act three, and you actually have to go out. And you can do this in microcosm with individuals who are saved, and you can do this in macrocosm with the history of the church. I do not understand, I, I just do not understand millennialism at all uh, on an aesthetic level. Postmillennialism is this arc. It's the, it's the arc of the individual transferred onto the church. So you have justification and then gradual sanctification, uh, and then resurrection. That same narrative arc on the church. Think about the story. You know, this, I, I, I love the story. First off, that, um, you know, you, you have the infinite word, prophecies coming, that the infinite word, the creator God, is coming. He's coming to the world. And somebody says to you, you plan the party. You plan the event. You cater it. Here it comes, you know, here, here we go. Um, and then he shows up, and he shows up in a virgin's womb. He shows up in a barn. He's placed in a food trough. And he stays in the food trough until he dies, and on to the present. 
It's like in a food trough for the livestock. And still in a food trough for the livestock. Every week he's in the trough for the livestock. Yeah, and it was a big moment. The angels came. They sang to the sheep. They sang to the shepherds. That was it. No kings, no emperors. Just sang to the sheep. Literally sheep. And then we move on. And he lives in the trough. He lives with the lepers and the poor. He stoops. He dies. He falls all the way. Death and resurrection again. Just like in the pasture. The same theme, the same motif again. He rises up and he goes and he tells 12... mostly fishermen, 12 guys. Yeah, there's a doctor in there. There's one synagogue trained, smart guy who had a classical education. One guy with a classical education. <clears throat> the rest were a little more hands-on. <laughs> They'd gone to the University of Phoenix. Um, 12. 12 guys. 12. And says, you handle it. It's like act two, Boom. Now you guys go out. You 12, go out. Anybody who thinks the world hasn't gotten better from that moment on over the last 2,000 years isn't paying any kind of attention. That's the story. This is not a story that where there's a church with big fancy buildings. Uh, you know, If you go to, into St. Peter's, you'll, you'll see the, the black curly Q columns, which I love and are amazing, but they kind of belong in Mordor. Um, sort of like it's, it's impressive it's neat I'm not sure I would stick that in a sanctuary but in fact, I'm sure I wouldn't but it's, it's really impressive those people the people that had the death grip on, on the sheep the people who are extorting money from the sheep and telling the story of extortion of money the people wearing those outfits and those magic hats it's like, and they are magic a mitre has to be buried with the bishop uh, my brother-in-law and I tried to track one down once. Uh, we wanted a reading club. I think it was a poetry club where we had to have miners. Turns out you can't get them. They're magic. Um, this is the ark. You look at the ark of Catholicism. You look at the story that, that Calvin told based on grace, based on gift, based on sacrifice, and then actual resolution, and not just, whoop, you stuck again. You know, just sort of like you, you are, you're playing a... It's like playing a, a game of Monopoly, and you just it, every other space is go to jail, you know. So we go over and over and over again, and, and somebody calls this a great aesthetic achievement. It's liberating. It's liberating in terms of life. It's liberating in terms of view of history, and not surprisingly, it's liberating in terms of art. We can paint because God paints. We can sculpt because God sculpts. We can tell stories because God tells stories. It's what He is. What is the image of God on man? It's like, well, it's, it's complicated. I'm sure there's lots of facets. There's lots of issues there. The ability to analyze cause and effect is not one of them, unless that's part that dogs also share. It's like, what is distinct about us? And there's a lot, I think there's a lot of aspects of it. But the fact that we are creators, I think, is a, is a major part. Go out and see if you can find other creators. In this world, we are created and creating. We create like him. We imitate him. That's what we are. We tell stories. We sing songs. Music affects us. And we duplicate it and fold it and change it and offer it back up to him. And we also just have our barroom songs. And that's fine, too, because frivolous art is just fine. So long as it's not flattering the flesh. Calvin would say, or degrading good morals. So, you know, half of the Irish songs are okay. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) 
maybe half. So the question is, you know, at the, at the end, I didn't come up with the phrase, ain't no mojo, like Reformation mojo. Um, that showed up in the brochure as a promise that I would end on that. Um, but it fits, and it really does. Because you cannot look at art at all and have any prayer of understanding it or creating it or offering it up to other people without Calvinism. And he didn't invent it, obviously. Without Paul, without the scriptures, without natural revelation, it's God's theory. Calvin is the one that distilled it in a, in a period of extreme darkness, extreme manipulation, and a really bustling, thriving art scene. You know, he's the one who stepped into that moment and helped break it all down. And the thing that stuns me more than anything else about Calvin is that he didn't become dour and sour. I absolutely would have. If I had been stuck there with those people, and those thoughts, and those doctrines, and that manipulation, and that extortion, and St. Peter's brain on the high altar, how would I have behaved? Would I have been casual about drama? Would I have been okay with painting and sculpture? And the answer is no. I would have freaked out. I would have become one of those New England people um, from those, you know, the, the bad stereotypical stories. I would have embraced the stereotype. Uh, we absolutely cannot embrace the stereotype because it's a lie. The Reformed faith, which is just to say the faith, really, the faith is liberating. The faith gives us everything from stand-up comedy to Handel's Messiah and makes all of it okay and all of it honoring God and all of it is an example of us imitating him, but on different levels and in different ways. He writes limericks, clearly. There's lots of them out there, and he writes epic poems. And it's all okay for us to pursue. Without Calvin, without his relaxed, insanely relaxed, easygoing approach, reasonable approach to the arts, without his love of music and his appreciation, his vision for the arts, despite all the lies that were immediately in front of him, we would have none of that. We would still be doing it without cause, without reason, without justification. Thank you very much. enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, The Institute of Awesome, keeping Calvinism sassy for the next 500 years. Available now on Canon Plus.